Is life worth living? That was the question about three or four months ago when we had a reenactment of a debate between uh, Clarence Darrow and a prominent Baptist theologian from the University of Chicago. That debate actually took place in our church many years ago during the early part of the 20th century as one of our Sunday evening lectures. It was well done by Gene Burke and Gene Mayakowski. So what is the answer? You have to decide for yourself. But I would vote for the affirmative myself. During the early part of the 20th century, our church hosted a whole series of these Sunday evening lectures. And many of the most prominent speakers in the United States were brought in. It's really quite an amazing thing that our church ancestors did. Speakers like Will Durant, Alfred Adler, Jane Addams, and Bertrand Russell spoke in our church. This series went on for some 30 or 40 years, and, and I'm not sure of the date, but Kathy will tell me later on how long. On February 16, 1936, the Sunday evening lecture was given by the foremost African-American intellectual of his time, W.E.B. Du Bois. If anyone has taken French, I know you want to say Du Bois, but it's the Americanized pronunciation, Du Bois. Yesterday was his 150th birthday. He was born just at the end of the Civil War. I did not plan to do this on the day after his 150th. It just happened. Du Bois is a fascinating character, and his lecture that evening was entitled Italy and Ethiopia. It's also a fascinating topic, and you will see that when we get into uh, what he very likely said that evening to our congregation. But first, I just want to tell you some things about him. Because although he is probably the most prominent civil rights leader in American history between Reconstruction and the modern civil rights era, period of some 70 or 80 years, he is not nearly as well known. William Edward Burkhart Du Bois was born on February 23, 1868, three years after the end of the Civil War. He was born in Barrington, Mass. Soon after his birth, his father left the family and was not seen again. They were free people. They, his, one of Du Bois' ancestors had fought in the Revolutionary War and gained freedom. And so their family had been free for many years. So he grew up a free African-American in Massachusetts. He attended Great Barrington High School. And during his high school years, he was a correspondent for several newspapers as a teenager, including the New York Globe. He immediately was a writer. He 
graduated valedictorian of his class and won a scholarship to Fisk University, which was at that time the most prominent African-American university in America. And he received his bachelor's degree in 1988, and then he got admitted to Harvard University, which would have been an extraordinarily uh, unusual thing at that time, and he uh, got a second bachelor's degree from Harvard in 1890, and then began graduate studies at Harvard. During his graduate studies, he took off for two years and attended the University of Berlin. Uh, he says, like many African Americans will say, that during his time in Europe, for the first time in his life, he felt like he was an equal person in this society. That was the first time he felt that. So he spent two years in Berlin, which really broadened his horizons, and then he came back to the United States and completed his PhD at Harvard, the first African-American to ever receive a PhD from Harvard. Then he begins teaching at various colleges. He taught Latin and Greek at Wilberforce University. He taught briefly at the University of Pennsylvania and then moved to teach to the uh, University of Atlanta, another uh, African-American university. During this time, he's writing serious sociological studies on the lives of what life is like for post-Civil War African-Americans. This becomes his topic. What is life like for those people? And in 1903, he published a book called The Souls of Black Folk, which is actually, which is a classic in studies of African-Americans. And in this book, he tries to, it's called The Souls. So it's not an academic book. It's a book of vignettes and essays about different people, and he tries to get into how they feel and what it feels like to be an African-American. This is in you know, the eight, late 1800s. What, and he, he, he gets into their struggles and their souls and their frustrations and their aspirations. And it's very, written in a very beautiful, poetic way. I, it's, it's truly a classic, and I really recommend it to you. Now, at the same time, W.E.B. Du Bois is having a public uh, dialogue or debate, we might say, with Booker T. Washington. And I'll bet you if you learn something about African-American history during this period, that's the name you probably remember is Booker T. That's the one we are taught about. Well, let me tell you what their argument is about. Booker T. Washington is arguing during this time that, that the African-Americans need to uh, first, on, as first priority, strive to become economically independent. They need to get to school, they need to learn a trade, they need to become productive citizens first. And then, when that's accomplished, then claim full rights. So it's a sort of sequential process. And Booker T. Washington spends his time building schools and trying to get people educated and so forth. Du Bois, du, du, du Bois, I'm having trouble, says, no, we are entitled to equality right now. 
We, he says, now, that's what the reading says that we read. Now is the time, not some better day, not some day in the future. It's right now that we can claim full equality. And so they have a kind of a tension that goes on for quite a few years. And, just, and different people in the African-American community kind of split in different ways. In 1909, two black men are lynched in Springfield, Illinois. And that sets off an outrage that becomes the formation of the NAACP. So the NAACP forms, and Du Bois, who is a famous author at this point, is appointed to the NAACP's board of directors and becomes the director of publicity for this new organization. Du Bois is the only African American on the board. Du Bois is the only African-American on the board. Everyone else is white, including a pretty famous Unitarian minister named John Haynes Holmes, who was part of that founding as well. And just as an aside, was also part of the founding of the ACLU. So Du Bois is a founding board member of NAACP. He begins a monthly journal for that organization called The Crisis in which he puts forth the issues of the day regarding race. And one of the positions he takes is for equal treatment for racial equality and gender equality. He says, every argument for Negro suffrage is an argument for women's suffrage. So he takes that position in the early, uh, around 1910 or so. And during the same time, he publishes a book called The Negro. And also, he's part of the NAACP leading a boycott of a famous, we might say infamous film called The Birth of a Nation. I don't know if you've heard of that film before. It was a blatantly racist movie, blatantly racist, that uh, became very popular in the United States. As a matter of fact, one of the presidents, I think, had a showing of that movie in the White House. So the NAACP leads a boycott of this film, The Birth of a Nation. In 1919, he organizes the Pan-African Congress in Paris and becomes very interested in Africa and starts traveling to Africa back and forth and trying to unite the country's uh, in Africa in common cause. And after he's been visiting Africa for a while and starts to become more and more uh, involved in the struggles of African nations, he starts to become a, more of a Marxist in his thinking. So that becomes uh, his framework, and he resigns from his post at the NAACP. And the issue over which he resigned is phrased as the issue of voluntary segregation versus integration. Du Bois believed that voluntary segregation was a better path for the black people in America. Not forced, but voluntary. In other words, to gather in communities and build strong uh, black communities. So that was an issue. Um, in 1935, he publishes a book called Black Reconstruction in America. And in 1936, 
he delivers a lecture at the First Universalist Church of Peoria, entitled Italy and Ethiopia. That is our church, down on Hamilton, of course. So if you have a picture of that sanctuary in, on Hamilton, you can just put him in the pulpit that night in February, 82 years ago. Helen was three. <laughs> I'm just pointing that out. I remember the first time when I was leafing through some church history of some sort, and I saw the title of this lecture, Italy and Ethiopia. And I really got to tell you, I didn't know much about W.B. Du Bois. I'm, I wish I had, but I didn't. So I knew he was a famous guy. <laughs> and when I saw that title, Italy and Ethiopia, I thought, oh, this is probably a travelogue. <laughs> you know? He's been traveling around. <laughs> And he's going to tell us, you know, that there are a lot of canals in Venice and stuff like that. And so, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I never knew exactly what that was all about. So I've done a little bit of research, and Kathy's helped me with a couple things, too. But I want to tell you what I think his lecture was about that night. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is on the right track. So at the time Du Bois is speaking in February at our church, uh, Mussolini is leading an invasion of Ethiopia, a military invasion. And that's going on at the time that Du Bois speaks to our congregation. He is trying, Mussolini is trying to conquer Italy and make it Italian. He's going to take over the country. That's, that's the goal. So why would Mussolini be doing this? Uh, it's a very complex story, and, and I have tried to absorb a few of the details, but I, I can't really describe that to you. But I would say, on the simplest level, Mussolini is a fascist dictator looking for some place to conquer. And Ethiopia was open. Because no one had yet, uh, people have been colonizing Africa, and European nations are all conquering different places in Africa, but Ethiopia hadn't been conquered yet. And so it was kind of an open spot on the map. And so Mussolini decides that he's going to conquer uh, Ethiopia, and it will become Italian territory, be a colony. Uh, he wants to make Italy great again. <laughs> well, I think it's true, because Rome has been one of the great empires of the world. There's, Italy has a history of having empires. And so uh, there's a sense in which you can see that, that Mussolini would want to revive that identity and that sense of power, and he's a pretty mean dictator, so he's not particularly interested in human rights. So uh, the battle is going on for Ethiopia, and the Ethiopians do not have modern weapons. They, have mo they just don't have the kind of weaponry that Mussolini has, and they're getting beaten very, very badly. And so 
That is not going well. And as a matter of fact, about two months after Du Bois spoke in our church, Mussolini takes over the capital of Ethiopia, and the war continues, but he's really pretty much solidified his control of Ethiopia. And in fact, one writer that I read said that this is actually the apex of Mussolini's power. This is the high mark as far as his conquest is concerned. So we know that Du Bois was making public statements against this invasion of Ethiopia. Ethiopia was an African country that had not, never been colonialized. And so he sees in Ethiopia the hope of an African society that could be just African, that never gets taken over by uh, a European power. And he says that when places are taken over by colonial powers, it completely shifts the identity and the character of that place. And the same thing happens in the United States with the slaves. He says that the people who get conquered, and, and he talks about American, African Americans as having a double consciousness. Now the double consciousness is really... <laughs> Exactly what Amy told the story about today. Because you have an identity that you're a whole person and that you're fine, you know, and you, you're uh, a good person, and yet you have this other voice telling you that you're not. And he says that for people in that situation, that creates what he calls this double consciousness, where you're sort of constantly in conflict with yourself. And it really reflected in, in Amy's story today. So he's extremely interested in having African nations be African and not be colonized and conquered violently by, by some other power. David Billings, the guy who we've been studying on Thursday night, says the same thing about the slave trade in America. And Du Bois says that the invasion of uh, Africa by Europeans is part of this process cre that creates the idea of race. This is what makes the idea of race become part of human consciousness, this conquering of one people uh, of another, and then the conquerors declaring that those people are not fully human because they're of a different race. And so, and so the same thing happens with the slaves in, the, in America, and you get the idea of race. I want to just note uh, that the Italian bishops cheered on Mussolini's invasion. And there's some interesting quotes from them. And this, I think, um, is not unrelated to the whole idea of the doctrine of discovery where uh, you know, the Christian world is entitled to go to other lands and conquer them. So the bishops were uh, cheering the boys on, on, in the army, and when Mussolini finally conquers Ethiopia, there is huge celebration and dancing in the streets in, in Rome and across Italy. So I suggest to you that in all likelihood, this is what Du Bois 
talked to our church about that night. That he was, a, he was a very strong opponent of the invasion of Italy. We also know that during this time, both uh, that Ethiopia appealed to the League of Nations, which was a, a fledgling organization at that time, and the League of Nations did nothing. And that this is cited as one of the reasons the League of Nations failed, because of this this war demonstrated that they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about an oppressive uh, dictator sort of going wherever that person wants to go. Du Bois wants us to think about what African nations would be like if they hadn't been conquered. What would they be like? And he thinks Ethiopia is one of the places where that could have happened. It could have been a truly African nation. Black Panther is a movie that is out right now. Just saw it last night. Where the storyline is based upon the idea that there is a civilization in Africa that protected itself from being noticed during the era of colonization of Africa. And so as a result of that, this civilization has developed and become very technologically sophisticated and all of that, but without being conquered without ever having an oppressive class over them, just being their own nation. And so, this is what Du Bois is interested in. What would Africa be like without the racist colonization? In Black Panther, you see a nation full of proud and beautiful people who do not have this poison of racism in their characters. They're, they're different. They, they don't have that. And then we see that contrasted with uh, Americans who do have it, who do have that poison. Go see that movie. So this is what Du Bois is increasingly interested in is Africa and how African nations can break free of their oppressors and become truly African. This becomes one of the centers of his focus. In 1945, he attends the founding conference of the United Nations in San Francisco. And in 1948, he is dismissed from the NAACP. That would be a wonderful thing to pursue more precisely what happened. In 19, uh, he, he becomes the chairman of the Council on African Affairs, which is a group that supports African liberation movements against their colonizers. And in 1950, he's nominated by the New York Progressive Party for the Senate, but does not win. In 51, at the height of McCarthyism, W.B. Du Bois is indicted 
as a spy for the Soviet Union and is put on trial for espionage. He is acquitted on counts of being a spy, but he's denied a passport for the next seven years of his life. He's not able to travel. And during that year, his wife also died, 54 years. In 1958, he is awarded the Lenin Peace Prize, and in 1961, at the age of 93, he joined the Communist Party. I knew there would be a ripple. There. <laughs> Soon thereafter, he renounces his American citizenship and moves to Ghana and becomes a citizen of the African nation of Ghana. And he dies there on August 27th, 1963, at 95 years old. And the next day, uh, one day before the march on Washington and King's I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King delivers a eulogy for W.E.B. Du Bois. And the next day, they march. Undoubtedly, feeling, I think King feeling he is standing on the shoulders of Du Bois and other people like him. That is a brief sketch of the life of W.B. Du Bois. It's only the very briefest little introduction. I was in a bookstore the other day and I saw a biography of his that's about 600 pages. I picked it up. I leaped through it, but my heart failed me. <laughs> but I am ex I'll tell you, I am extraordinarily curious and impressed by this person. Martin Luther King said, history cannot ignore W.E.B. Du Bois because history has to reflect the truth. And Dr. Du Bois was a tireless explorer and gifted discoverer of truth. His singular greatness lay in his quest for truth about his own people. The degree to which he succeeded discloses the great dimensions of this man. I am also proud and delighted that Reverend Clinton Lee Scott in 1936, or perhaps a lay committee who made these decisions, or maybe some combination, had the presence of mind to invite W.B. Du Bois to speak at one of our Sunday evening lectures. That is a remarkable church highlight, I think. And it shows how our congregation has been struggling and pondering these issues for really as long as we have been a congregation. It is something that we will continue to do and that is a central part of who we are. May we be better people from hearing the story of one person who changed the world. So be it.